Well, again, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning for a time in God's Word together. And of course, that was our reading from the Scripture just a little bit ago. As we get ready to start, i got a question for you. Have you ever went to a family reunion that you weren't sure you were going to survive? <laughs> and I don't mean because of the cooking. <laughs> um, I was thinking about our passage this morning, and it's really a passage on forgiveness and reconciliation, and it got me thinking to an account in the Old Testament about two famous brothers named Jacob and Esau. You remember those two guys? Remember their names? And if you go back and you read, I believe it's around uh, Genesis 35, somewhere in there, there's uh, part of their story, but, but the rundown of it was these two, these two men were twins. They didn't look alike, but they were twins. And they grew up apparently in somewhat of a dysfunctional home, and they had a dysfunctional relationship. And if you know the story, you know Esau was the eldest, and therefore he should have had the rights and privileges of the firstborn. And one day he went out in the field and went hunting and, and came back to where the family lived, and there was his brother Jacob making up some delicious stew. And Esau was hungry. He'd been out in the woods. He hadn't had anything to eat. And it wasn't like you go to the drive-thru on your way home. You had to go home and find something to eat. And who knows if there was any bread or any slaughtered animals or anything. And here is a hot pot of good food. And I ain't eaten for a while. And so he asked his brother for some. And his brother used it as an opportunity to make him swear that he would give him his birthright for a pot of stew. And he did it, <laughs> because he was so hungry. And maybe he didn't think much of it in the moment, or didn't think it was a matter. So his brother, who should have loved him and cherished him, swindled him instead, betrayed him. That was only the first big offense. Some time went by, and their father Isaac was going to bless Esau. Isaac was getting near, he felt like he may be getting near the end of his life. It was time to kind of ceremonially pass on the inheritance to his firstborn son. And he was going to bless Esau. And he, and he told Esau, go out, get some meat, bring me the meat that I like, and then I'm going to bless you. But as Isaac was getting older, his, his eyesight was failing. He was feeling the passing of the years. And when Esau went out, Jacob, the swindler, the schemer, saw another opportunity. And Jacob went out. He got some meat, and he did something else too. He took some goat fur, I believe it was goat, and he wrapped his arms with goat fur because his brother was hairy. And I guess he was pretty hairy if you could wipe your arms in goat hair. And Anyway, he was trying to be an imposter. He was trying to fool his father. His father couldn't see, but he knew he'd probably put his hands on. And when he did, he would feel those hairy arms and think it was Esau. So... I don't know if anybody can relate to that. You're known for your hairy arms, but Esau was. It's kind of interesting. Well, Esau was out. Jacob did this. Jacob came in and began to impersonate Esau. And Isaac was like, boy, it doesn't really sound like Esau. Is it really you, Esau? Come up here. Let me feel your arms. And he felt his arms. He's like, well, I guess it's Esau. And then, and then Isaac blessed Jacob, the imposter, and gave him the rights of the firstborn and passed on God's promises that had come down to Isaac from Abraham. He passed that on to Jacob. So Jacob had completed his betrayal. And it was like a done deal in that culture in that time. There was no one doing it. 
So Jacob had betrayed his brother, betrayed his father. And as you could imagine, that caused quite a rift between him and his brother. And to the point where it was so heated, it looked like Esau would kill him if he could get the chance. That he would kill his own brother because of what he'd done. That was how hot and tense it was. And so, as it goes, Jacob fled. He left. He went to go live with distant relatives in the north. A guy named Laban. It was his uncle. And he was up there for about 20 years. 20 years was there this giant rift in this family. Jacob and Esau apart. At odds. Jacob didn't want to even see Esau because he's afraid he's going to kill him. This kind of, you know, you might say in, in one sense he... You know, he, he deserves something. <laughs> He's a pretty bad guy. And so 20 years he was in the north. He ended up getting married to Leah, Leah and Rachel and had two other concubines. Ended up having, uh, I think about, uh, I think he was up to 11 sons about 20 years later. And he, he finally needed to get, get out of Laban's hair. He left that place and he finally decided to go back to his homeland of Canaan 20 years later. And you can read about this again in Genesis. And as he got closer to home, he started getting nervous and anxious and worried that when Esau saw him, he would still be hot and he may be coming after him. And so he was worried. Now you have to understand, Jacob, when he was coming home, he had quite the entourage. He had servants and animals and flocks and he had his two wives and two concubines and his children and he had this this big group traveling. A big group. And... um, (laughs) But anyway, he was coming home with all that, and by this time Esau too was a big group. He had all kinds of guys and servants and a family and everything too. And Jacob was praying at different times, and then he sent out out some some messengers, kind of go out ahead of us, look around, see if anything's going on, see, see if you see Esau, what's going on. And they came back and they said, yeah, Esau's coming, he's got 400 men with him. And so if you're Jacob, you're thinking, okay, this is probably a mistake. <laughs> I've left all this stuff unresolved. I left my brother mad enough to want to kill me, and now I'm going back home, and he's got an army behind him, basically. And so Jacob starts to strategize, and he's, trying to, he's thinking what he should do next, and he actually splits his family up into groups because he's thinking, like, well, if they get part of the family, they're going to get all the family. And he starts segmenting his family out. And finally, the time comes, Esau's close at hand. Jacob goes out to meet him, to face it, to kind of, in one sense, kind of finally face the music of his past actions and crimes. And Esau saw him, and Esau started running his way. And you know what Esau did? Grabbed hold of his brother, says it fell on his neck and wept and kissed him. And that kind of culture of greeting at that time. And he, he embraced him as a brother again. After all that he'd done, after all that time, after all that unresolved sin and anguish, it doesn't use the words explicitly, but that to me is a picture of forgiveness. Esau forgave. Esau let go of the bitterness he felt in the past. He let go of his rights to have, in a sense, justice. Or probably in his mind would have been vengeance. I should get to pay him back for the things he did for me. He let go of that. And that's what forgiveness is. When you let go of your right to seek retribution toward an offense against you. 
and he forgave and he received him back as a brother. And so they, we know, I don't know how, how intimate their relationship was from that point on. It doesn't tell us, but Jacob was able to come home, bring his family, and they were able to live in peace those years because of forgiveness. God must have been working in their hearts over that time and in Esau's heart. And it's kind of a, one of the few bright spots that you read about in some of these men's family life and their, their history. And I think of that story as I look at our passage again this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We see here another example of forgiveness, of, of, a, of, of broken relationship and forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. We see an example of this and see it play out in real time in the context of a local church. I'm going to go back and read the passage in a minute, but let me kind of just set the background again. We've been going through 2 Corinthians, and the Corinthians were a troubled church. And apparently what is being talked about in our passage this morning was an ongoing part of the saga between Paul and the Corinthian church. And the issue at hand in this book is primarily the fact that some in the church rejected Paul as a leader, rejected him as God's apostle, and apparently tried to distance the whole church from him and lead them away from Paul and his message of grace, thereby taking the church down a path of error and even heresy away from the truth. That was what was at stake, and that's kind of what's playing out here. Now, what had happened was Paul had written the epistle of 1 Corinthians to correct a lot of issues they had. And then he had at some point visited them, and apparently at that visit, he was very firm with them. And he laid down the law, as we might say. And he said, you guys need to really come together on these issues of truth and, and pursue the truth and follow the grace of God. And he, and he calls it a severe trip, a, a sorrowful trip. That's what he's talking about here with all this talk of sorrow. He didn't want to have another sorrowful trip because he had come to them and it was painful because he had to bring correction. And he had to do that at his level of apostle. That's what he was at that time in the New Testament. And he had went back to Ephesus, where he had written 1 Corinthians, and he was going to go back to Corinth at some point, but he got word that there were some in the church that were still struggling with him and still pushing against him. And so he had written another letter to them, Kind of another, he had written a sorrowful letter to them. And he's, he's, he has decided not to go back at this time. Not to go back there to have this, another big confrontation face to face. Instead, he chose to write a letter that was very corrective. And he calls that one severe and sorrowful. And he sent that letter to them instead. And now he's. Um, He's writing once again, and some in the church were still against him, and they were saying he didn't keep his word, he didn't come when he said he was, and there was still a minority group in the church pushing away from Paul and saying he's, he doesn't tell the truth, he's not a good speaker, he's not really a man of God. They were questioning him and his authority and his apostleship. 
And Paul is dealing with that. And there's a particular individual that comes up in this passage of Scripture. And I'm going to give you my viewpoint that this particular individual he's talking about is probably one of the individuals that led the rebellion against Paul in the church. That they were an anti-Paul guy, a character. And they were trying to take the church away from Paul, the truth of God's grace today. And this is a brother that Paul had to mention, deal with, uh, talk about in his previous writing where he was severe. And we see, we're kind of fast forward in this passage to then what happened. Were they able to work things out again after this split in the church and Paul really having to get firm with them? Because, you know, I have a, it's, it's kind of hard for me to even imagine a church today where if, 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 they were, if a group was going down a path of error and somebody came to that church and really was firm, that people would receive that. Because I, I think we live in a time and a culture, even in the church, people don't really like the idea of correction. They don't like you. I don't need to hear your opinion on this. I don't have to follow you. I don't have to listen to anybody. To be honest, I would tend to think most times that would be the end of their working relationship and their relationship in ministry. Because so often the flesh comes in in our Christian relationships. But So we kind of pick it up here in chapter 2, and let's read the first four verses together here, where Paul writes, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. In these verses, we see Paul applying love into this broken relationship between really him and the church and this particular individual that he doesn't name in our passage. We see love is the main thread through our passage, and right beside that is forgiveness through this passage, as we'll go through verse 11 this morning. But Paul talks about, again, verse 1, I didn't want to come to you again in sorrow. That's where he's talking about, I didn't want to come and have another visit where all we do is talk about what you're doing wrong and we're going to fix it. He was trying to give them some space and he was trying to give them some time to respond to what he'd already done. So he wasn't being heavy-handed. He wasn't just continuing to pressure and lay guilt trips. He was backing off a little bit so the Holy Spirit could work in people's lives. And we've talked about that as we've already covered part of chapter 1. We too need to give the Holy Spirit room to work in pe people's lives and we, we have moments of conflict. We need to realize when it's time to back off and let the Spirit work a little bit and not just keep nagging or pressuring or really pursuing like a dog on meat or something uh, when something's wrong. We have to say the truth and deal with it, but we need to also be able to give space at times. But he said, I determined within myself I would not come to you again in sorrow. And verse 2 it's kind, of a, it's kind of hard to read in the English what, what he's saying. It's a little clunky. You know, in the New King James, again, it says, If I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who's made sorrowful by me? And what he's saying is, 
he's really opening his heart here and he's saying, I want to come and have a good time with you. I want to come and have some gladness. I want to have some cheer, which is what the word gladness means. I want to just come with you and I want to be cheered up with you. I don't want to come in. And we're dealing with correction again. And we're dealing with grief and sorrow again because of what's going on. I want to come have a good time with you. But he says in verse 2, if, if I come and I make you sorrowful, then for me personally, all I'm going to have is sorrow too because I'm going to feel the weight of it. I'm going to feel the sadness of it. I'm going to feel the grief and pain of it. And I think he's being honest here, and he's like, I don't want that right now. And I think if, we're being, if he's being real, I think the real transparency, he's saying like, I don't really need any more sorrow at the moment. Because when he, when he talks about here in a minute, in verse 4, he talks about he writes out of affliction and anguish of heart. He was already going through the ringer himself in his own life. And so he's just explaining the context. He made a decision to write a letter, to put his mind to, to paper, to send it off to them, to, to follow up with the visit he had made, and to, to kind of complete the corrective measures he believed needed to take. So he wrote a letter of what they ought to do. And that's the letter he's talking about in verse 3. I wrote this very thing to you. Now, I believe this letter is not part of our inspired scripture, that it was a, a, an epistle in between First and Second Corinthians. Um, we've talked about that before, but there's a sequence of letters and visits to Corinth from Paul. And actually, he wrote a letter to them originally that wasn't preserved. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians, which is preserved. And then he wrote an epistle of sorrow that was severe, which is not preserved. And then he wrote the fourth letter, which we have in our Bibles, and then we know it as 2 Corinthians. And that's what we put together when you look at certain scriptures, where he's talking about writing something, but it doesn't line up to what's at, what came before in 1 Corinthians. There's other things added. There's a, there's a heavy, heaviness to it that's not as present in 1 Corinthians, and there's some wording and things. So it, we, we get this view that there's actually multiple letters here, and he's referring to one that doesn't, uh, is not preserved. And so, but he still took the time to write them. And, and the key thing that we really want to see in these first four verses is how it comes to an end in verse 4. He wrote them so they would know how much he abundantly loved them. You know, I'm sure some were trying to tie on to his reputation that all he does is come and bring everybody down and gets all severe and corrective and he talks a big game, but, but you know whatever, they're putting him down and, and mocking him and so forth. But he says, look, I didn't write to you just to cause you pain. He didn't sit down with a vindictive, you know, attitude and be like, you know what, you can just, oh, I'm going to get you now, you know, and write this stuff down, you know, which we might be tempted to do, and we've really had it up to here with somebody. I'm going to tell you what I think you ought to do. <laughs> no. He, wanted, he, he wrote because he loved them, and that's what we have to see in all this, because the point we want to see in these first few verses here is love necessitates confrontation. Love necessitates confrontation. I'm going to tell you, if you have a relationship with somebody and you say it's a loving relationship, but when there's a problem, there's no confrontation, then it's really not loving. It's really not. Because we're not dealing with the things that will hurt the relationship. And that was what was happening at, at, at the level of the church. There was things happening that it would not be loving to allow these things to continue because everybody will be harmed if we let this go on. And so sometimes, as we say, love has to be tough. 
Love comes in with discipline, with correction. And that is what, what was happening here. He was correcting them. And he was hoping that they would respond to that. But love necessitates confrontation. There's a story told about a professional carpet layer who laid down a new carpet, stepped back to look at his work, and in the middle of the carpet, he saw a bump in the carpet. And uh, he started patting around and realized he had lost his pack of cigarettes. And so he's like, I must, have sewn, I must have buried the cigarettes under the carpet. So he thought, well, I guess it's just cigarettes, and I'm not going to tear the whole carpet up to get them. So he went over there with his hammer and just pounded the, 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 it flat, pounded the cigarettes flat. And he thought, well, that ought to be all right. And so he went out to his van, he was loading his tools up, looked in his seat, and there was his pack of cigarettes. And a little bit later, the, the, the man of the house came out, kind of waved at him and came over to his van and said, hey, have you seen my son's gerbil? Ah, <laughs> uh, it's right. <laughs> kind of a funny story. I think it's funny. You may think it's disgusting, but <laughs> it is a little gross. But there's a picture of a guy who's trying to cover up his sin, trying to not, I don't want to deal with it. And he's doing the proverbial, I'm just going to bury it under the rug. You know, the sweep it under the rug. Not going to deal with it, just going to hide it. And that's human nature. That's human nature. It goes right back to Garden of Eden when, when Adam was found out he sinned and he hid from God. And we tend to do that now. And we tend to hide from each other. We don't want to be found out. And we, we tend away from confrontation because we don't like that. We don't like that correction. We don't like working through problems and working through relational problems and so forth. But again, love will always bring us to that. If we love, if, if, we're, if we're not willing to step in and, and, and deal with a problem in a relationship, then really we don't love enough. So we see Paul's abundant love here. And the way that that's applied is, no, we can't just bury this. We have to deal with it. Bring it in the open. Be honest. Deal with it. And let's, let's correct it and let's move on. <clears throat> now, one of the things, too, we see in this passage is the idea of joy. The idea of joy. He talks about in verse 3, I, 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 want, I have confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. And before he said, again, I want to come to you in gladness. I, I want to just have joy with you. I want to experience joy with you. And so Paul's aim and everything he's doing here is, is joy with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's our next point here, that love works through the pain toward the greater joy. Paul was willing, because of his love, to go through a painful confrontation process because he, looked, he didn't just look at the moment. Because that's what we do, right? We got something unpleasant ahead of us. Oh, this person did this. I really should say something. I don't really want to say something. I don't really want to deal with this. I got enough going on in my own life. I got my own problem. And we don't want to deal with what's right here. But we, we get so focused on right here, we don't see what would, what would be beyond that, down the path, if we would just walk through the painful moment. There's a greater joy always ahead of us when we're following Christ and we're wanting to build up our relationships with one another, he's putting before us like, no, there's something always beyond. We see the painful confrontation and be like, I don't, I'm not doing that. He says, no, look over here. 
to what can be if you'll work this out. What Christ will do in each of your hearts. And you can come together in a more special way than ever before. And he puts a joy out there. The joy that we can experience together. In the Lord together. And he says, so love motivates you to go into the confrontation, the painful part of relationship. And he puts even beyond you, there's a joy ahead if you'll go through it. So he's working both in the motivation and in what's ahead. And see, that's the thing. When we see things from God's perspective, we see we, that begins to take away that fear of confrontation. And that thing of like, well, this can't go well. I, this is never going to work out. And all these pessimistic thoughts and all that kind of stuff we might have. No, instead the Lord is saying, love from the heart and look to the joy ahead. And then we're more willing to embrace that process of pain that comes in the middle when there's relational breakdowns, when there's problems, whether it's in a church, a family, a home. Again, thinking back to like Jacob and Esau. Jacob was scared out of his mind as he took every step back home. But, what, but because there was forgiveness and then there was this immense joy that followed. That pot, but it would never have been possible if he hadn't been willing to face Esau. It would have never been possible. As we go on in our passage here, look at the next few verses, 5 through 11. We'll read, um, we'll read 5 through 7 to start here. But He says, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was afflicted uh, by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Our point here, as we keep walking down this path, is that love brings both discipline and forgiveness. Paul had written a sorrowful letter, and many in the church responded. He talks about a majority, right? You caught that. He talks about a majority Again, in, what is it, verse 6, the majority. The majority responded and said, we're going down the wrong way. This individual who's not named is leading us down the wrong way, and we're going to take a measure. And, and apparently what they did was some form of separation from this individual. They, as a church, took some steps of church discipline. And they, they separated from the person. Perhaps he was taken out of leadership, I don't know, but apparently there was some of that, and that's actually part of Paul's instructions. When somebody's, if they consist on going into heresy, and you, you have to at some point separate and say, no, that's not what we're about, that's not what we're doing. That's what love does, because that's going to harm everybody if we don't. And so they had taken those steps. Now, again, a lot of people, and it was kind of historically viewed this way, that some think he's talking about the man back in 1 Corinthians 5, the incestuous man, and you know that had his father's wife, and that, that's dealt with in 1 Corinthians 5, grievous sexual sin back there, and he told them to deliver such a one to Satan, which again seems to indicate, no, he's not allowed in the fellowship because he's choosing to live apart from God, and if you just keep saying it's okay, that brings everyone down, and it draws everyone away from the truth. But I don't think this is what he's talking about because he says, I'm only grieved partially. I, I think what the man back in 1 Corinthians 5 did would, would have been very grieving, and, it, and, it, and I don't think he would talk the same way about it. This seems to go back to, in this letter, he's defending his apostleship very largely. He's probably talking about a man who led the attack against him and his apostleship. And that was what was at stake here, is the church moving away from the truth of the gospel of the grace of God. 
And so the church responded, and they, had took, they took these disciplinary actions. And now Paul is stepping in and saying, look, um, the person only grieved me a little bit. And, and again, a little bit of a clunky verse here in verse 5. Again, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. And some of your Bibles may render that, but if anyone has not caused grief... Uh, he'd only grieve me in part. And there's a terminology in part, like in probably ESV and other translations. But it seems like, like from the Greek, what Paul's saying is, he grieved me some, sure, but he actually did you more harm than he did me. And that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it because it seems like this probably was a very personal attack against Paul and his authority and his message. And Paul is not taking it personally. And there is a life-altering perception right there, not to take things personally when somebody has to say something. But that's, that's what we do. We're personable people. We're relational people. We tend to take things personally. But we, we do so wrongly at times. And we make things all about me. And that person just doesn't like me. If that person critiques how I do that. If, if you, don't, you don't like the way I tie my shoes and you say, well, hey, you know, you're going to trip on your shoelace. I can take that very personal, I guess, and say, you just don't like me. That's a really stupid example, by the way, but, but anyway, we know what we're talking about. People want to step in and they'll say, have you thought about doing it this way? And you're like, well, I don't like that. I don't, you must not like me. You're critiquing me and my way of doing things. Well, that's not what Paul did. He didn't take it personal, and even though it was more of an attack against him. It wasn't just honest criticism. It was actually a, it was a personal attack, but he even, didn't even take that personally. He chose to continue to walk in love and deal patiently with these people, with this individual, and there had been this separation, and now you know what he's doing? He's saying, it's time to forgive and come back and, and move forward together. There's a restoration here that's taking place. But we do need to see the fact that, again, love brings confrontation. Love brings discipline. Love brings discipline. A corrective measure at times. Any, any parent learns to know this in our lives that we sometimes have to help our young ones steer away from error and things that will do them way more harm in their life if we don't say anything. And we have to bring in corrective measures and whatever that looks like. I think of Hebrews 12, 6, where it says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And if you were to say, well, why is that? You read down to verse 11 of Hebrews 12, and it says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that's a verse that's talking about God's relationship with us, his children, that he's going to work in our lives. And he will let pain come into our lives sometimes to help us go back to him and, and to go back to the truth and to walk with him. Because it would be unloving to let us just wander off forever is how he would look at it. He, want, he loves us too much to just let us go and go down the path of our own destruction. And that's what parents learn is, again, we have to step in as moms and dads, and we have to have a firm no to our kids, and we give disciplinary actions and corrective measures at times so they can learn, and they can grow from it. And so discipline is part of it, and the church had done it, and that was right of them. That was right of them. But they didn't leave it there, and, and that's what he's really correcting now. He's actually saying... You've actually disciplined enough. Now it's time for restoration. Okay, it's done. It's, it's run its time. It's done its job. Now it's time for restoration. And that is what he's talking about here 
when he gets into verse 7, which we read, and he says, now it's time to forgive and comfort, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. See, he's actually warding the Corinthians off from getting too vindictive. Because again, that's where our flesh will take us. We get into that, we get into anger and wrath rather than just righteousness and holiness and what's right and what's wrong. We get into the emotional side of that, and we really want to press down on somebody. We really want to make them hurt. That's, that's our flesh, right? Somebody insults you, what's your first reaction? Insult right back. Do it one over. Somebody's critiquing you, criticizing you, you want to return the favor tenfold. You know, that's the flesh there, right? We know that. And it's easy, even like, like they, were, they were as a church, they were doing the right thing in a sense of doing discipline, but, you know, there's some ego and there's some flesh there, and now some of them are like, let's just keep, let's pound him. He really deserves this. Let's really just squeeze him. You know, let's treat him like that gerbil under the carpet. <laughs> let's pound it, pound him right down. No. But he's saying, but no, that's not the point. This, this was never about revenge. This was never about being vindictive. This was never about me or you, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his truth for the world and his grace. And they, as a community, were representing that to the world. So that's the stakes here. It's not personal. It's God's work in their lives and what God wanted to do. And, if, and so they needed to confront, they needed the discipline to maintain what God had called them to. But now, as a community, they need to know it's time to forgive and to love and show that to the world, too. So that can help take the gospel of grace out to the world. So it was time to forgive and to move on. And that's what he's calling them to in these next two verses. This isn't about swallowing somebody up in sorrow and just making them hurt so bad. That's just vengefulness. To be honest, that's what a lot of parents do wrong when they discipline their children. They do it with anger and wrath. And, oh, but you had enough of you. That's wrong. That's not the kind of, <laughs> that's not what God's doing. That's what our flesh does. You know, our flesh, our, what, what God calls us to is abundant love. Let's go to the person. Let's go to the child. Let's go to the broken relationship. And let's say, let's say what, what we're looking for here. And yes, be firm, but it's always in love because of the joy set before us. And so he's putting that here at the level of the church. We pick up with verse 8. He says, Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So eight again, love comes out. It's time to reaffirm love. It's time to, it's time to have that Esau moment and embrace this guy. Embrace him. Embrace the one who's wronged you. If that's not a picture of what Jesus Christ does in our heart, I don't know what is. That you can embrace the one who would offend you, hurt you, cause you pain. But that's where love can take us. Now look, it, 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 in one sense it takes two, two parties. It takes both parties. And I want to turn forward a few chapters and read something, and we'll talk about this more when we get to this passage. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to go to verse 8 and read verses 8 through 11. And you can turn there with me. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8 through 11. 
Paul revisits what he's talking about here in chapter 2, and he's a little bit more precise and clear as to what he wanted to see happen through the correction and discipline of the church for this individual and what he was working toward with them. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning with, um, what did I say, verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. For though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. So again, he's talking about that rough, that rough letter he wrote that we think we don't have anymore. Verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. This is where he gets into what he's looking for. He's talking about a process of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation here. This is for any relationship, for any church, it covers all things. That It's what we always want to see. When there's been somebody's done something wrong against another person, violated, offended, something. The process that God puts forward is a process of sorrow, repentance. I'll add sorrow, sorrow, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration or reconciliation. This is what he's working toward. This is the relationship going from broken to mended. And that's, that's what he's talking about. So he's saying, I wrote a letter and it, and it brought a sorrow, but he says it was a godly sorrow. He's talking about those feelings of conviction we have when we know we've done something wrong. And we're like, that was... I was wrong. That was stupid. That was dumb. I blew it. I, you know, that's, that's just what we should feel. Sorrow. We've really done something wrong. And he's saying, this isn't the sorrow of the world, which I think is more like just regret for getting caught. You know, you know that kind of sorrow, right? Well, I, if I would have got away with it, I probably never would look back. But I got caught. Now I'm sorry I got caught. You know, that's the sorrow of the world, probably. That kind of an idea. But he's saying, no, godly sorrow. In other words, sorrow that God brings, that God works, that God uses in your heart. That when you, you look at this situation, you've done something wrong, you have that grief over it. Like, oh, that was, oh, Lord, I, that's not right. And he says that, that takes us to repentance. And repentance is, is, is at its root means a change of heart, is what repentance means. In the Greek, it means change your mind, but it's really talking about change of heart. It's talking about like, one moment, I thought I was in my anger, and I thought this was a really good idea to just shout at you and nail you to the wall about what I don't like about you. And then I moved away from that, and a little bit later, the Holy Spirit's working on me, and I'm looking back going, that was stupid. That was, I blew it. And I don't like what I did. I don't like who I was in that moment, and I need, I need to do something about it, and I want to change it. And my heart has changed in that moment, right? My heart has changed. Now I look back, and I look at that with grief. It was just a moment ago, maybe, in my anger, I thought this was a really good idea. And now I'm grieved over it. And now I, ha I have this change of heart. And sometimes it takes time for repentance to come. And that's where the correction and disciplinary action comes in. The guy who Paul had to deal with apparently didn't have a change of heart right away. He was up in his emotion and up and against Paul and didn't like what was going on. And he was ready to lead the whole church away from the truth. And Paul says, no, you guys need to correct this. And they did. And over time, that man saw the folly of his ways. And he had sorrow 
in his heart. And he looked back at how he had treated Paul or he, what he had done. And he looked back and he started to grieve his actions. And his heart changed. Right? That's what's going on with repentance. And then when his heart was changed, you go to the person and you ask forgiveness. I was wrong when I did that. Will you forgive me? And I'm going to give you my opinion. Words matter. I think words matter. I think it goes a long way to a person. If you've offended somebody, you say those words. We live in a culture where it's like, nah, you didn't bother me. Don't worry about that. I didn't. Kind of burying it under the rug. We're, we're, kind of, we're losing our gerbils under the rug again. <laughs> no, you, you say it. Will you forgive me? And then it's up to the offended person to forgive, which means to let go, to release that, to release that person, release that. I forgive you. And when that happens now, now we can come back together, reconciliation. Two that were at enmity, now back in a state of friendship. Now a relationship broken, now it can be mended through this process. This was happening at the level of the church in our passage. This is why they took the steps they did. They were going too far with it. Paul says, back off a little bit. He's there. Now it's time to reconcile. He was, he was likely acknowledging his wrong. And now it was time to say, I forgive you so we can come back together in love and move forward together. That's what's happening, again, back in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And that's what Jesus teaches us. You get into verse 10, he talks about the forgiveness. That's what the Lord Jesus teaches us. In Ephesians 4.32, I'm going to read that passage for you. Ephesians 4.32, it says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. It's hard to ask for forgiveness sometimes when you've done something wrong, but it's hard sometimes to grant forgiveness if you've been violated in a certain way. And a lot of people, that's where they stop. I think a lot of people have got hung in the Christian life because they couldn't forgive the one who wronged them. They had to hold on to the grudge. It hurt so bad. And you know what? That'll, that'll create a bitterness in our heart, and that will be something that, will hold us back the rest of our lives if we're not willing to let it go. See, it's when you can forgive is when a wound can begin to heal. It's when you forgive that a bridge that's been burned can begin to be rebuilt. Archibald Hart said of forgiveness, Forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you. Let me start over. Forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. But what does Jesus Christ teach us? He forgave us. He sets the example. And he, he wants to come into our heart, fill our heart with love and grace to such an extent that we can too forgive, that we can let go when we've been wronged. It doesn't mean we don't need to take steps of working things out. You know, we need to, we need to talk through things. It does, we're not talking about burying it under the rug, but we're talking about working through the process. It may be a painful process, but it's worth it because we can have a greater relationship than even what we started with. I kind of skipped over verse 9, but Paul talks about he was wanting to put them to test for their obedience. And what he means by that is, he wrote to kind of see if they were going to listen to him anymore. He, he, he kind of needed to know if they were going to listen to him. That's one of the reasons he didn't really want to go, to their, go back to them. He wasn't sure if they were going to listen to him in the first place. So he may be wasting a lot of time and effort and resources. So he wrote the letter Continue the process of correction. Are you listening? And they were. 
And he says, and now he has a greater confidence in them to complete the process as God would have them do. So he's written to them. They're showing they are responding to the word of truth again. They're following the message of grace. They're responding. And so he says, yeah, now it's time to move forward together. It's time to forgive. And then you come to verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And, and kind of here, at the end of this passage, he, he sort of takes back the curtain a little bit and says, and actually, all the while you were dealing with this, in the background, spiritual warfare is raging in all of this. It's not just you. The very forces of light and darkness are involved in your willingness to forgive a brother who's offended you. This is spiritual warfare. This is, I would say, the tip of the spear of spiritual warfare is can I forgive and love others the way Christ calls me to? Because if I can't, Satan will use it against me every time, and he'll hurt a church with it. And he'll, it will hold, we can hold each other back through our unforgiveness and our hard-heartedness. And he says, look, we're not ignorant of his devices. We know he's a schemer. We know he has purposes. And his purposes is for us to divide and dwindle. Not divide and conquer. It's divide and dwindle. That's what usually happens. when It's all about personal relationships. People get mad at each other, and I'm not going to hang out with that person anymore. I'm done with that person. That is the very devices of Satan. And so at the end, he kind of comes around. It's time to forgive. And by the way, if you can, then Satan will lose this one too. And we want Satan to lose again. We don't want him to win but again, this shows you right where Satan's working. You know, I mean, Satan, Satan don't get me wrong, he, he'll use anything and everything to keep people in darkness and keep people blind. There's a testimony of scriptures that paint this picture. Cults, religions, yes, he's working in that. Secular, humanism, yes, he's working in that. But I th he's just as active in the local church than he is in any place out in the world you might go. Because he's right here looking for weaknesses, looking for divisions, looking for tears where he can pull the thread and really tear the whole thing apart and burn the whole thing down. And, and Paul says, we need to remember that this is at stake too. Our own hearts with the Lord, our own personal testimony as a church, and Satan is trying to diminish that any way he can. So not only is it just personal relational stuff, it's the very heart of spiritual warfare happening right here. And so that really gets our attention, doesn't it? And says, this is important stuff. That we want to be careful that we're walking in passages like this too, that, that we're letting love direct us into fixing relationships and seeking forgiveness so we can bring, come together in, a, in reconciliation. I want to just think back to another Old Testament story as we get ready to close here. Another place in Genesis, and it's the story of Joseph, who was the son of Jacob, right? You know, we talked about Jacob and Esau. Well, Joseph had his own share of brotherly discord, as you'll remember from the passages. Joseph had, uh, he was one of 12 brothers. His 10 older brothers didn't like him. We won't cover all that, but they sold him into slavery. They, they faked his death, sold him into slavery, following in the old man's footsteps, weren't they? Their old man was Jacob, by the way. Remember the schemer? Well, they had their own schemes. They made Jacob believe his son was mauled by a wild animal. They took his favorite coat, ripped it up, got blood all over it, and said, look, your son's dead, when really they had sold him into slavery and knew, every, and knew about it. And poor Joseph, he went with the Ishmaelites down to Egypt, was sold to Potiphar, and the guy just, every time you read about him, you just see a guy who just like kept in his heart was like, I'm just going to follow God. I'm just going to serve God. 
He wasn't bound down with his circumstances. He didn't let the weight of the world just crush him to nothing. He just kept saying, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to serve God. He goes to Potiphar's house, and he's serving God, and he rises to the top. And then Potiphar's wife makes the false accusation against him, and he's thrown in prison. And in prison, he's like, I'm just going to serve God. And he rises in the prison system. And eventually, he ends up with an opportunity to, to, to inter interpret Pharaoh's dreams, right? And that leads to him being exalted and elevated to the, to the position of second, all of in Egypt, the most powerful country in the world at that time. He's like number two in the whole wide world as far as authority at that time, in his time. And if you remember the story, there was a famine coming, and Joseph, in his wisdom, led Egypt and the whole world through this great famine. And eventually, back up in, in Israel, where his family lived, they were running out of food, and so they had to start coming to Egypt. And through the chain of events, eventually, they were in Joseph's court in private one day, and Joseph finally revealed, by the way, I'm Joseph, your brother. And you know what those, those ten brothers were feeling, right? They were feeling a lot like Jacob about to meet Esau. They were like, we dead. <laughs> They're about to end up like that gerbil. <laughs> They're about to get pounded and buried. Don't be the gerbil. That's the message this week. Don't be the gerbil. No. <clears throat> Don't hide under the rug. <laughs> um, what was I talking about? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Joseph reveals himself, and they're scared, and they're like, oh, we're, we're, we're done for. And he's like, he just keeps saying, how's my dad? How's my father doing? Is my father alive? Is he okay? And they're like, uh, you know, you read the passage. They're like stunned. This is Joseph. It's, you know, the recognition dawns on them. And you know what Joseph does to his brothers? He embraces them. He forgave them. He embraced them. He looks at it from God. He said, you guys meant to do me evil. And he doesn't say what they did wasn't evil. He doesn't just bury it under the rug. But he says, but God meant to do it good. God used it for good. See, that's the God we have. Even when people violate you, God can use it for good. He can still be there for you. He can still give you the grace to forgive and to embrace the person that's wronged you. And that's what happened in that story. And, and, and again, now these brothers, guess what? They all moved to Egypt. Jacob came down and they, they you know, it's almost like happily ever after. It wasn't, but it was pretty close. They, they lived out their days in Egypt, you know, because of what God had done through Joseph. Because of, because of forgiveness. That's what, that's what you see with that story. Again, that's what's in our passage this morning. Just the important as us as God's children, because of his grace and his love and his forgiveness toward us, to be willing to forgive and let those things go so there can be restoration of relationship. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word to us this morning, your power in our lives. And Father, I'm sure we all have situations in our life where we've been wronged, we've been hurt, and it's hard to forgive. But Lord, Show us your grace in that, in each, each of our hearts. If there's something to forgive, give us the strength to forgive it, Lord, so that we can move on in wholeness, Lord, and not have our own heart divided by bitterness. Father, we just pray you continue your work on us as we move forward with you. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.